Hey everybody, and welcome to Good Stuff Happens, the podcast where we talk about positive news, heartfelt stories, and delightful fiction. I'm your host, Josh Brussler, and today on the podcast, we have the talented Jeff Lupito Esposito. Here he is. I'm Jeff Lupito Esposito. I'm an LA-based lyricist and writer, and that's my bio. And his bio definitely sells him short. Jeff's an incredibly thoughtful, sharp-minded friend with great comedic sensibility, and for whom I've had the pleasure of playing music under his direction on multiple occasions over the past decade. I asked Jeff about the favorite part of his week and the article of positive news he chose, and his picks are fantastic, but heads up, we recorded this episode back in December, so you'll once again be graced with some delightful Christmas motifs. I know, how wonderful. Uh, Favorite part of my week was uh, that we had a Christmas carol sing-along yesterday uh and yeah i just like love having all these people in a space uh doing something together in unison that they have not practiced uh but they can do it full force and with like full passion i love that Okay, so the article that really caught my eye was, it was in the AP, and it was called Grinch Steals Christmas from Nuns, But They Get It Back. (laughs) And I'll give you the really top line of what it was. So, uh, I'd have to read this exactly. It says, the little sisters of the poor have a theory about how they got Christmas back from the Grinch, who stole half the presents they bought for hospice residents and employees. Uh, Essentially, these two sisters... Uh, Sister Joseph Caroline and Sister Bernadette, shout out. They were wheeling two carts of gifts out of a Costco that they were going to give to these people at the hospice. And then a man came up to them and offered to help to, like, put things into the truck. But when they got home, they realized that all the gifts that were in the cart that that man had helped to put in the truck were gone. But before they called to, like, file the police report... Costco called them and was like, hey, actually, the cart has been found. It's, it was abandoned in the parking lot. Everything's still there. No, nothing was taken. And the reason they believe that happened was because, as Sister Bernadette tells WBAL-TV, that when the man asked to help, and, like, obviously with his intention to steal it, she said that she was so grateful for his gesture and, and said, like, I'm going to pray for you. Like, you're, you know, you're really important and, and special. And so she says she believes that was her offering of that kindness that then he was like, damn, I can't steal this stuff. And it made me laugh for, like, I love it for a couple of reasons. One, because I, to me, like, a good story is one that is bad first. I think, like, good is in contrast in a lot of ways. And, uh, and like, my favorite kind of good is in contrast to bad or sad. And... Also, as a huge musical theater fan, 
I love that this was like literally Les Miserables in real life. For those who are not familiar with Les Mis, Jean Valjean, the lead character, uh, is stealing from like this priest who had like taken him in, and the priest actually lets him steal the precious silver that he's stealing, but gives him this kind of blessing, and it leads to this huge crisis of like, or huge moment of self-realization of like, who am I? That's it's like, am I going to be someone who who takes from people or am I gonna be a good person you know what am I really and I I want to imagine that like this guy had that moment like he he was going to steal from these like little nuns and then like they just like said this sweet little thing to him and I I want to imagine that this is like a huge turning point for him like not just not stealing these carts of toys but like being like I need to rethink what I'm doing like I'm stealing from like a nun who was taking gifts to hospice, which is like so, so bad. Yeah, so I, I like not only the story of it, but like what I hope that it has since led to. Jeffers prepared a beautiful story from his childhood about memory and making sense of how our experiences never truly leave us. I think it's really special, so here he is. So I stopped being a sports fan a pretty long time ago, uh, around when I realized that no matter how hard you cheer or scream or pray, you can't change what happens on the field. Except I recently remembered that there was this one time when I did change what happened. It took me a while to remember it because I have a tendency to cover up my memories in like a super thick melancholia. It just has always felt really romantic to me. It's like eternal sunshine of the spotless Jeff whenever I rehash a memory. The shins are playing in the background and everything seems to hurt more than it actually did. And I just love that feeling. But sports, specifically baseball, suffers the most from that revisionist personal history, and that's because, well, I was not good at the sport. Um, the highest compliment I ever received in Little League was good eye, and, and this meant that I had ostensibly successfully looked at the ball and chosen not to swing at it, and uh, the truth was, of course, that I was frightened of the ball, and I was too scared to swing, uh, but now as an adult and a self-proclaimed theater person, thank you very much. A thing I tell people is that I grew up in northern New Jersey, but when we went into New York City, it wasn't to go to Broadway. No, it was to go to the Bronx to see the Yankees play. And when I say that, I am, I am looking for sympathy. Um, because, like, people should understand that my privileged family outings to see a professional baseball game was the reason I was not exposed to the theater at an earlier age, and in turn was to blame for why I never got formal vocal training, and why you will not find me soaking in a standing ovation tonight on Broadway. But, again, if my aim is to move New York City audiences to their feet, I have to remember that I had once already done that. The time I changed what happened on the field was at one of these New York Yankees games. On one heart of the summer day, my brother, my dad, and I took the ferry from Edgewater, New Jersey to the Bronx to see the Yankees. Presumably, the ferry was the most cost-effective option, uh, or at least it avoided traffic and parking, which, as many of you know, uh, are the two leading causes of ADS, which is Angry Dad Syndrome. Uh, so we took the ferry, me, my dad, my brother Joe, and Joe is three years older than me, 
We both played Little League, of course, but I remember once he hit a home run, and it was honestly one of the most thrilling things I'd ever witnessed. The ball seemed to lift itself over the fence just further and further like it was possessed. And and Joe, he, he wasn't afraid to swing. But uh, when we took the ferry to see the Yankees, I was actually the brave one because Joe would get seasick and I would stand at the helm of the ship with my dad and wind whipping, boat thumping. And I was brave because back then I used to ski black diamonds and, and I actually used to agree to go on insanely unsafe water slides with names like H2O No, which was at Mountain Creek Water Park. And uh, I just think, God, what kind of imprudent monster was I? So while my brother's stomach churned and the ferry gurgled towards our baseball mecca, it was as good a time as any for my dad to begin our culinary experience for the day. Uh, reaching into his seemingly bottomless warm backpack, he pulled out a plastic shopping bag full of potato chips, off-brand yodels, fruitios. Uh, there was no way in hell my father was going to buy food on the ferry or at the stadium. With snacks now to line the stomach, then later, in the main course, the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches somewhere around the sixth inning. That would give the jelly just enough time to fuse into its encasing of whole wheat, creating something that years later an artisan bakery in West Hollywood would call jelly bread and sell for $14 a slice. But until then, eating these packed snacks and sandwiches was a freaking bummer. It was obviously the correct decision to bring food, but Damn, all I wanted at the time was for my dad to pay completely unreasonable prices for Cracker Jacks, hot dogs, and lukewarm pretzels. Felt like I was missing a big part of the fan experience. But then again, we were no average fans. We were the fans who were going to change the course of Yankee history that very day. ferry docked in the Bronx, and we arrived at our holy destination, Yankee Stadium, a place packed with sweat, sacrifice, history, from Babe Ruth to Joe DiMaggio to Derek Jeter, men acting like boys and all their tribal bloodthirstiness, but without ever needing to hurt each other. When we walked through the stadium gates, the climb began. The ascent to our nosebleed seats was our Everest, scaling faded cement steps traversing puddles of Coors Light. Uh, we climbed level after level until we reached our foldable blue thrones, and the grounds crew below looked like tiny pale crumbs from the plain lays potato chips rolling around the bottom of the plastic shopping bag tucked into the depths of my dad's swampy backpack. Then someone sang the national anthem, and baseball was played. I couldn't tell you who the Yankees were playing that day, or even what year it was exactly. I just know it couldn't have been any time after the 2001 season. I know this because 2001 is the year when I became certain that fans couldn't change the course of a game. That's when this particular game, this day, faded out of view in my memory and uh, was just made blurry by that tantalizing melancholia. 2001 in this city and its suburbs marked the end of something, a send-off to fearless runs down black diamonds and faith in water slides. It had to be before 2001, this game, because uh, no security guard checked my dad's backpack when we came in. Uh, because my dad, also at the time, still had his job, and we had the disposable income to go to a baseball game. 
and because it hadn't yet been made certain that no matter how badly you want something to happen or to change, you just can't will it into being so. Because in the seven-game World Series of the late fall of 2001, the New York Yankees played the Arizona Diamondbacks in the shadow of the missing towers, and a city prayed in unison for a bit of good news, and they were counting on their Bronx bombers to deliver the payload. And the force of their prayers proved enough to physically lift Derek Jeter's bottom of the 10th home run in Game 4 at home. It was the night he became Mr. November. Our golden boy, his smile an anthem, the tipping of his helmet a salute. But in Game 7, outside the glow of our unity, deep in enemy territory in the desert of Arizona, we lost. For the first time in my life, the Yankees made it to the World Series and lost. And I was sure that fall day in 2001 that some things were beyond our control. But that hadn't happened yet. That overwrought, melancholic bullshit hadn't marred my memories yet. So somewhere around the sixth inning in that heart of the summer game, when my dad reached into the sweaty, sopping wet depths of his backpack and pulled out that wrinkled plastic bag which held those freakish little peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, I grabbed one and scrunched up my face to take the smallest bite possible. And so focused was I on this painstaking task that I had lost sight of the fact that I was the last one of us to take a sandwich. That we had eaten all the snacks, that the now empty plastic shopping bag was sitting on my lap, unattended. So when a breeze off the East River dipped into the top of the stadium, it took hold of that plastic bag. I never felt it leave my lap, I just caught a glimpse of it in the corner of my eye. Time had already skipped a beat, there was no reaching out to retrieve it now. And so our plastic bag whooshed and floated as if possessed or guided by prayer, down from the grandstand toward the field of play, level after level, attracting the wandering eye of a few bored fans and the reaching effort of a few ambitious drunk fans, but nothing could stop it. My father, my brother, and I stood together at the high altar of this trivial temple, suspended in time by curiosity, thrill, and abject terror. Our plastic bag soared straight to its apparent destination, down, down to the edge of the infield where it finally made landfall and somersaulted lazily into the back of the ankle of number two, the eventual Mr. November, Derek Jeter. The darling shortstop, along with legions of fans, realized together in perfect harmony that a shitty little plastic shopping bag had found its way onto the field. Onlookers rose to their feet for a better view, a, a quick view, presuming the moment would pass, and yet Derek Jeter did not bend over to pick up the bag like one of us talentless mortals would. No, our pinstriped hero tried to kick the bag off the field, and he failed, and he kept failing, and more fans stood up and some started giggling, and our sweet-faced Adonis flailed his skinny little leg at that clingy beast, first presumably to kick the bag off the field, but then in what became a violent attempt to dislodge the bag from the bottom of his cleat. Not since David and Goliath had such a mismatched battle so deeply upset the Vegas line. All around us fans marveled at the mayhem, uh, laughs and gasps, and a sense that something had happened that wasn't supposed to happen. In a game so utterly regulated as baseball, this was a triumph of peculiarity. The third base umpire uh, held up his arm to formally hold play, and Derek, 
He was just a Derek in that moment, like you or me. He reached down and removed the bag from his cleats with his hand. The stout ump heave hoed his body over to collect the evidence. Derek passed the bag off and wiped his hands against his uniform. Must have been some lingering grease from those plain Lay's potato chips. And when time resumed, the fans sat down, and then my brother, my dad, and I sat down an imperceptible beat later than everyone else. And we had changed the course of things. Kind of. The game continued, the Yankees won or lost, and maybe no one else will remember that moment of fleeting unity, one that wasn't based on collective tragedy, but on the shared joy and curiosity of watching a grown-ass man who earned literally thousands of dollars an hour fail to kick a plastic shopping bag off of a field. It didn't change the big things. The Yankees still lost the World Series in 2001, and everything else that happened that year still happened. So I think maybe the way this moment changed things wasn't back then in the living it, but rather now, for me, in the excavating of the memory. In the telling of it, uh, in the choosing to think about a positive part of my experience with baseball to shrug off those Zach Braffian tendencies and choose to remember something good, I can now retroactively change the course of things for myself. Baseball doesn't have to just be not Broadway in my memories. Yes, I was absolutely still not good at playing the sport, but being afraid of the ball and never swinging also meant that I had one of the highest on-base percentages in the Little League. As it turned out, the pitchers were so bad that, theoretically, my choosing not to swing was a fine idea. I got walked or hit with the ball a lot, so I got on base. Uh, the bag that stopped the game couldn't have flown down to the field unless we had eaten every last morsel of those shitty bulk snacks and that I had complained so much about. Uh, and that breeze that gave the bag wings was an offshoot of the wind that whipped heavy in my face when I stood at the helm of that ferry. Brave. When you're a fan, you don't go to a game to change the course of it. You go because in some way it changes you. The experience stays with you even when it gets buried underneath the bigger things. It's still in there, waiting to be dug up, deep from the smelly, disgusting, dripping wet depths of the dead backpack. this episode with Jeff talking a little bit about a song that he loves. Here he is again. So I wanted to talk about uh, the Casey Musgrave song Rainbow. I love Casey Musgrave. She's the only country artist that I like or even really know. I'm sure there are others I could like, but Casey Musgrave is sort of the extent of what I know. And she had an album that came out in 2018 called Golden Hour. And this song on it, Rainbow, I think caught me for a couple reasons. One, because it's one of those songs that sounds like it's always existed. Uh, and I love when that happens, when you hear a song that you're like, this can't be a new song. Like, this has always been here. And so it has that kind of easiness and instant joy to it. But also because I think, I guess sort of thematically with how I felt about digging up a, an old memory and, and how I kind of feel about the contrast between good coming out of bad moments. Rainbow has that same premise and sounds like it's going to be 
the songs that I loved from the early to mid 2000s, like Decemberists kind of tracks that you think are just going to be like sad or like the shins, but then has a turn to it and its message is so uplifting and positive. And I think that kind of, I think reflects a lot of where I'm at now too. Like a lot of where I feel like, oh, it's not so fun to just sit in the sad of it all the time. Like you can get a little bit of it, but you got to come out of it too. And then I think this song has that. So I'm going to start by just playing the top um, where you'll hear her really simple and beautiful setup of that idea and the turn of um, the positivity. So that part really, I think, sums it up, which is uh, you're always seeing these rain clouds and thinking it's still raining on you, but actually take down the umbrella, look, and uh, you'll see that there is a rainbow above you. And I just want to jump to one more part at the very end, which I think is this last chorus and I think and sums up and says really beautifully, I think the sense of peace that this song brings me every time I hear it. Let go of your umbrella Cause darling I'm just trying to tell ya That there's always been a rainbow Hanging over your head Yeah there's always been a rainbow Hanging over your head You've been listening to Good Stuff Happens. I'm Josh Bressler. An enormous thank you to Jeff Lupito Esposito for his resonant stories and heartfelt thoughts. Jeff is currently developing a fictional musical podcast called In Strange Woods, so keep an eye out for that. Big thank yous to Connor Garrison for our intro and outro music, and to Josh Freeman who composed original music for this episode. Thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for additional music as well. Thank you all for listening, and just a reminder that water in even the tiniest creek can eventually flow to the ocean, and that's amazing.